everyone, and welcome to That Time When, the podcast about strange things that happened in history. I'm your host for this week, Barnaby King, and joining me as ever is my co-host, Amelia Edwards. Yo! Hello, how are you doing? I'm doing good, thanks. Good. And you? Yes, I, I'm doing well. I'm, uh, I'm watching metals change colour. Which means? Which means this week we're going to talk about alchemy. <laughs> oh, okay. I thought that was going to be a dad joke, but no, you're literally no. performing alchemy. Yes, literally I was wondering what the strange smells in the kitchen were. Yep, that would be the sperm and rotten meat. Is that part of it? Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's actually part of something slightly different, but it is alchemy. Yeah. Oh, my God. Okay. So, yes, I'm going to talk this week about Alchemy, Fun. the precursor to modern science that lasted pretty much the entire Middle Ages and yep. well into the 17th century. And then people started going, mm, maybe we should, you know, actually test this stuff rather than <laughs> doing basically magic. Mm. And of course, the most famous example of alchemy can be seen in Blackadder the Second. Yes. <laughs> in which Percy attempts to create pure gold, but instead he creates a nugget of purest green. Can it be true that I hold here in my mortal hand a nugget of purest green? Indeed you do, Percy, except of course it's not really a nugget, is it? It's more of a splat. Yes, creating gold, actually, do you know it has a name? No. It's uh, Chrysopeia. Ooh. And that is the That's Chrys a nice name for a girl. <laughs> it is, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Well, obviously it's an ancient Greek word. Sure, yeah. But people have always been, you know, interested in getting more gold because for a very long time we've used gold as, you know, the wealth metal. Yeah. And it was very difficult to get more of it for much of the Middle Ages mm. until, you know, we discovered America. Yeah. And Lots then Spain suffered from hyperinflation because of the amount of gold that they took out of South America. Yeah, this is what I always wonder about sort of stories about creating gold. It's part of the value of it is its rarity, surely. That's true. I suppose... Maybe people weren't thinking that far ahead. Mm. They hadn't really seen hyperinflation before. No, well, I mean, I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. But regardless of that, it was definitely the goal for a lot of people. Maybe that. Maybe they were basically just like, I'm going to do this and then keep it secret. Yeah. And then It'll I... be my goal. Exactly. Much in the same way that people try and create banknotes today. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it is basically early kind of extreme forgery yeah whereas like i'm not just going to create something fake i want to create the real thing mm. but i'm going to do it through this ridiculous process involving various acids and burning shit instead of just going to find some yeah should probably be easier and cheaper well probably but who can be bothered mining you don't even have to mine you can pan for it yeah that's true in the rivers in wales <laughs> You still have to mine it, though. Oh, you have to get it out of the ground. It's not just going to lie there. It's in rivers. Yeah, okay, but... So the way I always understood it, when you pan for it, you're kind of testing the deposits to see if there's going to be a, you know, a seam somewhere. Okay, yes, you can do that, okay. certainly. But also... I watched a video when I was in doing GCSE science, right? There, is li <laughs> there was literally a lady who was just taking the rocks from the bottom of the river. Right. 
and panning them. And she got enough gold to make a ring. How do you... Okay. The right. gold was just there. That, it doesn't tarnish. That's weird. I... I mm, you I, just find gold. <laughs> <laughs> what are we doing podcasting? Let's go. All right, Captain Blackbeard. Let's just settle down. <laughs> We're here to talk about alchemy and I barely started. Fair enough. But yes, one of the main goals was creating gold. And one of the main ideas about how you would be able to do this is with a particular substance. The Philosopher's Stone? The Philosopher's Stone. Which isn't necessarily a stone. In fact, most of the, in inverted commas, records of the Philosopher's Stone do describe it as specifically not a stone. (laughs) Like, it's more often described as a powder. Oh, really? Yeah. It's... I read somewhere, and I couldn't find it again, but I think I read someone's account that they call it a stone because it is unaffected by fire. I don't quite see... <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, the the listeners couldn't see my face transformation there. <laughs> I just went, what? You were trying to work it out. I was trying to work it out too, which is why I'm so annoyed that I can't find where I read this. I... I suppose, I suppose that counts as a definition for the time. (laughs) Well, anyway, the Philosopher's Stone was the sort of ultimate goal of alchemy. And it couldn't just turn lead into gold or, you know, base metals Mm -hmm. into gold. It could do all sorts of other things as well, including healing the sick, creating silver, achieving spiritual enlightenment... Well, the stone could achieve spiritual enlightenment. Yes. (laughs) The stone is sentient. Okay, cool. (laughs) No, uh, it could help one achieve spiritual enlightenment. uh, And it could also either create or it is the elixir of life, depending on which version you read. Okay, So basically you can live forever. So are you supposed to make it or are you supposed to find it? You are supposed to make it. All right. Um, It's definitely not a stone then. (laughs) But it's also a, accounts of what the Philosopher's Stone exactly is and how you make it. Obviously, not very easy to find. Yeah, like, that's because they're keeping it secret. Exactly, yes. Um, but part of the idea is that you're taking... A, one of the theories is that the, the materials required to make it are all around us, but they're just not recognized as being important. So I don't know. I think they just kind of took dirt and they were basically panning for philosopher's stones. I mean, okay. So I kind of get that given that this is medieval times Mm. and they hadn't understood a lot about chemistry yet. Yeah. Like there's a lot of wild stuff in soil that we don't really know is there until we start looking into it. Yeah. Like iron, you can just, get iron out of the soil with a magnet. That's true. And it's it, weird. Should, it should be noted that even though I have been ripping the piss out of alchemists, they did actually fulfill a really important role in history in that they were the precursors to science. And they did actually discover some really cool stuff, even though sometimes they gave it weird names. Nice. Uh, do you know about oil of vitriol? I've heard of oil of vitriol, but I don't know what it is. It's sulfuric acid. Oh, cool. Useful. Yeah, which they created by basically distilling down iron sulfate. Nice. So, you know, they were actually doing some stuff, even though they gave it ridiculous names like oil of vitriol or aquafortis, which is nitric acid. Okay, cool. (laughs) Um, I mean, 
it's cool though it sounds very cool (laughs) oh yeah it is and they had some really cool terms for things like one of the things that alchemists were really interested in was changing the color of things like all right one of the main principles of of alchemy is transmutation the idea that you can change one thing into another thing and they kind of thought it was important like you were getting closer if you could change the color of something Okay, I mean, that makes sense, Yeah, sure. that was kind of the main thing that, you know, that was the difference you could see. Obviously, now we know about atomic weight, various things yeah. like that. So it's it's not quite the same. Although we do still use the term transmutation, mm. even in scientific circles. In fact, there are a couple of um, phrases and words that we take from alchemy. Have you heard of squaring the circle? Yes. Yeah, that is uh, an alchemical and a geometric term. Cool. Because there is a maths problem, which is squaring the circle, which is impossible. Uh, but there's also, it's a feature of alchemy representing the four elements. Okay, that makes sense. It's also a term used in WWE. Yes, the squared circle is the ring in wrestling. <laughs> and also in MMA, I believe. I'm sure. Although, they also call it the octagon, I think. I don't know. Anyway, doesn't really matter. We're not here for that. We're here to do some alchemy. Okay. Um, so yes, changing the color of things was very important. And the original idea was when you were getting closer to something, what you really wanted to do was turn it red. Like, okay, sure. Once you turned it red, you were close to like creating the new thing you wanted. It actually goes through four stages. There's the negredo, the blackening stage. Sure. Then albedo, the whitening. Mm-hmm. Citrinitas, the yellowing. And Rubedo, the reddening. I love Citrinitas. I know, it's great, isn't it? It's also the only one that doesn't end in O for Mm. some reason. Citrinitas sounds like... (laughs) A lovely name for a girl. Well, I was thinking, (laughs) actually, for this one, that sounds like one of those names that you give to some company. Yes, it is. Citrinitas. Oh my god, it is, yeah. How can you live better? (laughs) It's one of those, like, health spa things that is worryingly in Colombia or something <laughs> and advertise that it's going to stick stem cells in you. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's going to make you yellow. It's going to give you jaundice. Yeah. It's a trinitas. Absolutely. But then later on, you'll turn red and then you'll become a powder and then cool. you'll live forever. Sure. Yes. <laughs> well, the reason I actually started thinking about this as a topic is because I watched a film recently called As Above, So Below. Okay. Which is also related to alchemy and that is kind of a principle of magic. Don't worry about that. Sure, okay. Not important. Um, but it is about the search for the Philosopher's Stone. It's actually a horror film. It's uh, it's not bad. It's all right. But it got me interested <laughs> okay. because of a particular... I, I was going to say character. It doesn't actually turn up in the film, but it is kind of like a... It's almost like a Da Vinci Code thing. What? So, like, he gets name-dropped? Yes, and a lot. Okay. And it's a name that I'd heard before, and you'll have heard before, and it's likely our listeners will have heard before, but I didn't really know anything about him. And I imagine that most of the people who know something about him don't know as much as they think. Okay. That name is Nicholas Flamel. I know him. Yes, he's you do. a wizard. <laughs> well, he is purported to be an alchemist, and not just any alchemist. Essentially, the greatest alchemist ever who managed to create the Philosopher's Stone. Okay. Now, So far, so first Harry Potter book. Well, exactly. And that's where most people will have heard of him from. 
And it made it really, really annoying <laughs> to research this episode. Understandable. Because as soon as you put Nicholas Flamel anything into Google, mm. Harry Potter, Harry Potter, Harry Potter, Harry Potter, yeah. the real Nicholas Flamel, and then I start reading it, and it's like, no, they're talking about Harry Potter again. Yeah. <laughs> it's very annoying. But I did manage to find out some information, which it's fantastic. We'll, we'll, we'll go through the whole thing in a sec. But we'll start off... Nicholas Flamel, we don't know exactly when he was born. Mm-hmm. We know it was around 1330. Whoa, yep. okay. And he was probably just outside Paris. Okay. We don't know exactly for certain. We know very mm. little about his early life. As with much of Middle Ages people. Yeah. Uh, especially because he was... He, it seems like his family was comfortable. Mm. And as such, incredibly dull. Yeah, okay, fair. They just... Merchants? Yeah, probably. I mean, he did end up being a bookbinder. Okay, cool. So, you know, it's that sort of level. You're not doing any of the sort of sexy stuff. You're not crusading. No, no, no. You've just kind of got a shop in Paris. Yeah. You've got a shop in Paris. You're not committing any crimes. No, exactly. Or or any obvious crimes. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So we don't know much about him. In fact, one of the first things we really know about him is that he got married uh, to a woman called... Perinelle. Oh, that's a good name. It is. It might not be her name. Okay. There are a couple of variations I saw, but the most common one is Perinelle, so I'm going to go with that. Sure. Uh, she was actually slightly older than him. She was about 10 years older. Ooh. And he was... Nicholas Flamel was a toy boy. Yeah. And he was her third husband. Oh, he was really a toy boy. <laughs> he Gosh. really was. But they seemed really happy together. They actually stayed together for the rest of their lives. Um, so clearly, you know... They'd found the one for them. Fantastic. Good for them. (laughs) Now, I've said already, Nicholas Flamel has a reputation as a great alchemist. And you might be wondering, how did this come about? Mm, From bookbinding, I'm suggesting he's not gone to university, because that would only be really specific people. Absolutely no idea. Like, Mm. that part of his life, no, nothing about. Okie doke. So maybe he did, maybe he didn't. Probably not, but... Well, actually, no, we know he went to Hogwarts. (laughs) Shut up. (laughs) God damn it. (laughs) Also, doesn't he live until at least the Harry Potter books have started? I think he lives until the the end of the first one or something. I remember he says that he's got enough of the elixir of life or whatever to... Like, put his affairs in there and, yeah, that sort of shit, but... Uh, yes. Well, I mean, if you have the Philosopher's Stone, presumably you have the Elixir of Life. Like, yeah. they are one and the same, basically. So yeah, I guess Nicholas Flamel just vibes for 700 years. Well, we'll get into all that later on. Okay. But we're going to go with the story of how he became a great alchemist. And it starts with a dream. Okay. He dreamed a dream in times, times gone, gone by. by. <laughs> when he was young and life worth living. No, he actually had a dream that an angel appeared to him. Cool. And the angel was holding a book, a very special book that was bound in copper. Right. With pages made of tree bark. Okay, sure. So, slightly weird already. <laughs> He's like, oh man, the books have got to me. <laughs> you know when you have that really stressful job, and or like something in your job has got a bit too much, and then all your dreams are about that, and it's like, oh, this book was so weird, I can't. <laughs> yeah, that, you know what, I hadn't thought of that, but yeah, totally, that's exactly what happened. Um, 
But he was obviously fascinated by this book. Not only was an angel holding it, but it was bound in copper, which was like at the time copper was kind of a precious metal. Yeah. So binding a book in it would be absolutely mad. It yeah. would be modern equivalent would be seeing it bound in gold, I think. Mm. Like to get the relative idea of what it was like. Anyway, it also had these pages of tree bark and strange writing on them. And he was like, that book is cool. I want to look at that book. Okay. And then he woke up. (laughs) (laughs) All right. And that's really stuck with him because he was like, I need to get some paracetamol in me. I've been having fever (laughs) dreams and there is no cure for fever currently. (laughs) Well, no, I think he probably kind of just put it off as a dream. Like maybe he thought, oh, you know, appearance of an angel could be significant. Yeah. But he didn't really do anything about it. Okay. Until fate intervened and made it happen to him instead. So one night, one dark and stormy night. No, I actually don't know. Okay. Some particular time, a person comes into his shop with a book to sell. Okay. A book that's bound in copper with pages made of tree bark. Oh, weird. And he's basically like, I want to sell this book. Okay. And Nicholas Flamel looks at it and he's like, oh my God, that's the book. Yeah. <laughs> but he keeps his cool and he's like, how much do you want for it? And the guy says, two florins, which is basically nothing. Yeah. Like, if the book's made of copper, yeah. it sounds like the binding of the book would be more expensive than two florins. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Okay. So Nicholas Flamel is like, okay, cool. Hands over two florins and gets the book. Wow. The book, I like, book is a generous term for what this was. Like... Possibly it was that the pages were tree bark, so it looked really thick, but it's recorded as being 21 pages long. Okay. Divided up into seven chapters of three pages each. Okay. I mean, I would count, as a medievalist, I would count that as a book. Oh, well, la di da. <laughs> Look at you with your actual knowledge. Well, I'm here going, a book, 21 pages. <laughs> Don't give me that. So for my thesis for my MA, I studied a book that was just made by an individual person who just put lots of different stories together and that was quite a common thing to do. Okay. And I think it was less than 21 pages, you know? it's It was very thin. Well, in that case, I guess I'm just a fool. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm joking. It's all right. Um, oh, fair enough then. I actually didn't know about that. Um, I have been pouring scorn on this book, but fair enough. We'll, we'll go with that being the actual book. Um... It's also noted that he couldn't read it. Okay. There were lots of strange symbols and writing that he couldn't read. Okay. The only thing that he could read was the author's name. Which was? Abraham the Jew. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> oh, that's made up. <laughs> <laughs> right? That is someone who doesn't know anything about Judaism. I mean, okay, it might not be. Um, there was a... So, Norwich, the city we live in, mm-hmm. is a world city of literature. Mm. And the reason why is awful. A world history of anti-Semitism as well. It's because of our history of anti-Semitism Yay. that we are a literary city. Okay. It's because there was... I believe it was an Isaiah or an Isaac who was one of the Jewish people who'd been sent out of Norwich right. um, and ended up in Spain, Yeah, but still calls himself like Isaac of Norwich. Right. And he wrote a lot of poetry all about 
uh, the Jewish people constantly being sent out of places. Okay. Um, and it's beautiful poetry. Mm-hmm. And they went, okay, so he's of Norwich, therefore Norwich is a city of literature. Oh, I see. There's also some other reasons, but that's part of it, which <laughs> seems really unfair. Okay, yeah. Um, but, but he, he wasn't just Isaac the Jew. I mean, he could have been called that by other people. That's kind of a relatively commonish. I mean, thing I to suppose do. so. I think it would be weird to put it yourself. Like, yes, it would. It also is the most obvious Jewish name. Yeah, Abraham, right? It's like if they were called Sarah the Jew. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like okay, which is why it's one. It, it's not my first red flag in this story. <laughs> but this might not be 100% true. <laughs> yeah, but this is definitely a red flag. Mm. So, Abraham... Abraham. <laughs> <laughs> Nicholas Flamel... Right. ...takes the book and... Nicholas the Christian, you mean? Yeah. <laughs> Nicholas the Catholic, specifically. Oh, yeah. Um, anyway, he takes the book and he's like... I need to learn to read Hebrew. Because if it's written by Abraham the Jew, it's likely that the writing he can't read in it is Hebrew. Okay, that's fair. I think that's a fair deduction. Yeah. Slight problem. Yep. Europe was going through a real anti-Semitic time at that point. It was. Yep. There were no Jewish people in Paris. Or if they were, they were in hiding. Yeah. So he's basically like, bugger this, I'm going to go to Spain. That's a good plan. Yeah. So he and his wife both together basically go on a short holiday. <laughs> nice. Except I don't know how far they get because apparently he does meet a Jewish sage, but he meets him on the road. Okay. We don't get the name of this Jewish person. Right. And I keep thinking of him in my head as the wandering Jew. Oh, no. <laughs> which is its own thing. Yes. Um, but this And like, also immortal. Yes, yeah, actually. You know, like Nicholas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, not yet. Nicholas <laughs> is very much mortal at this point and going on a short rambling holiday. Nice, okay. But he meets this man who I don't think has a name. I don't know if he's meant to be mystical. It okay. seems like he should be given, you know, random sage who has exactly what you're searching for and knows exactly what this book is because mm. this guy helps Nicholas, like, begin to translate it. And he can read the actual title of the book. It is The Book of Abremeline the Mage. <laughs> Which, <laughs> I mean, it's basically Abraham the Wizard. <laughs> like, that is what this is. Okay. It could not be more of like, hey, this is a wizard spell book if it tried. Yes. Okay. Okay. So, wait, is the idea that Abraham the Jew. Is. Wrote, is the same person. Yes. So why would he have written his... I don't, I don't know. Okay, fine. I don't know. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. We've just got to go with it. Is it just giving you a hint that this might be in Hebrew? <laughs> <laughs> you know what? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It's like one of those point-and-click adventures, and yeah. you're like, okay, I can only read this bit, but it says he's a Jew, so it must be in Hebrew. <laughs> so the film that I mentioned earlier at the beginning, As Above, So Below, uh, is actually, like I said, it's not bad. It's a horror film, but it, it does have definitely those Da Vinci Code elements, and there's a lot of like, oh... I know that he means this in this ancient inscription because of such and such. Right. It's like, oh, he used the word rectified. That means we have to put the stone back. And it's like, I totally see why they put this in the film because this is what it feels like when you read this story. (laughs) Yes, it also sounds... Okay, so 
we I don't think we've talked about um the history of the Latter Day Saints. No, we haven't. But their whole th- backstory, which many people know because of the Book of Mormon yeah. and South, South Park, Park, um sounds really similar to this. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like God tells you to go and dig under a tree and there's your book. Yeah. Well, Angel shows him a book. Then he gets the book. Yeah. And he gets someone to translate it. Yeah. And wow, he basically has the manual to alchemy and magic and everything like that, including how to make the Philosopher's Stone. This is a publicity stunt. (laughs) He's trying to make this go viral. That's what's happening. (laughs) Well, I'm going to say no. Like, we'll find out later. Uh, Nicholas Flamel and his wife are both just the loveliest people. Okay. It's really nice. We'll get to it in a bit. But the story goes that, you know, he's begun translating. He continues working on it while he's also doing his bookbinding job. Sure. And eventually he manages to recreate some of the experiments in the book. And he first creates silver and then he creates gold and he does all the mystical <laughs> things with the Philosopher's Stone. Nice. I like that he works his way up too. Oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> Because why would gold be easier to... Like, why would gold be harder to make than silver, because particularly? Because it's worth more. Of course. You know, so... And then he makes platinum. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't know about that. Like, alchemy has some weird stuff in it that's like, hey, this is this is how you make this. This is what's important. This is what's valuable. You know, I read one of the things, because I was looking through some of the weirder ones. Like, I mentioned earlier sperm and rotten meat. Yeah. That's how you make a homunculus. That makes sense. Yeah, which is basically like a little artificial person. Yeah. Um, to do your bidding. Again, it's all very magical, very Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah. And yeah, one of the things was sperm, rotten meat, in a warm place, leave to cook, you get a homunculus. Oh man, that just that just sounds like a really horrible process. <laughs> yes, it really and, does. Like really turns me off all alchemists, yeah. to be honest. Well, how about this then? There is also uh you wanna make some glass purple? Sure. Yeah, it's real simple. All you have to do is apply dragon's blood. (laughs) Oh, man. Okay. I mean, I think that comes with its own problems. Yes. (laughs) But, you know, the process itself, very simple and no sperm involved. That I mean, that's nice. (laughs) Do you think that's just a metaphor for how difficult it is? I have absolutely no idea. Like, one of the things about alchemy and the Philosopher's Stone in particular is, like, this goes back quite a way. Like, we actually, the first recorded mention of the philosopher's stone comes from 300 ce whoa like obviously people then say oh you know what it goes back to yeah. even before that and this is how people from the bible lived so long is because of the philosopher's stone but um no 300 ce is when we have the actual first i think written description of the philosopher's stone and the name uh and that is from Zosimos of panopolis nice who was a greco-egyptian alchemist and gnostic mystic which is just like... That's the job title we should all be aiming yeah. for, Alchemist isn't it? Alchemist Gnostic Mystic. A Gnostic Mystic? <laughs> That's really hard to say for It fast. really is, isn't it? <laughs> well, anyway, so I, get, I guess that even when you have the Philosopher's Stone, like, it's not just going to go, boop, you've got gold. You clearly have to use it in mm. some way. So he's probably still doing weird experiments, shoving it in rotten meat or something and working out exactly what he can do with it. And yeah, of course, because he has to level up, he goes from silver to gold. Yep. Um, and then he starts making money. Okay. And you know what he does with it? What? 
he becomes a philanthropist. Oh. He starts giving loads of money to churches. He starts giving money to the poor. He helps build hospitals. Mm -hmm. And he and his wife basically are just really nice. They just kind of give their money away. It's real chill. Did that actually happen? Yeah. Or is that like his own account? Uh, No, that did actually happen. We'll get to that later on. Okay. Um, Because you might be wondering, oh, like that. Oh, maybe, maybe this is real. No. Well, for the purposes of the podcast, you are. <laughs> <laughs> Don't tell me how I'm feeling. <laughs> well, anyway, this basically continues for the rest of his life. Like, after creating the Philosopher's Stone, it doesn't feel like he really does that much with it. Like, he's pretty chill. It okay. seems like he's just, you know, doing this for the sake of knowledge and also helping the poor, which, you know, All right. nice. Vibes, yeah. So... His wife dies about 20 years before he does. Okay. And he basically spends the rest of his life in quiet contemplation. And a few days before his death, he has a cast commissioned and a headstone commissioned. And he dies at the age of 88. Not bad. Which is very good, especially mm. for someone of this time period. Yeah. Like he dies in 1418. So, you know, that is a pretty good innings. Yeah. I think he manages to miss most of the Hundred Years' War as well, which is just as well. Yeah, fair enough. But obviously, that's not immortality. (laughs) (laughs) No, we know he lived at least until the 1990s. Exactly. But the story goes that a priest was not so sure about this whole Nicholas Flamel dying thing. After all, it's pretty suspicious that he had a cask made and a headstone commissioned days before his death. And he's like, I don't think he's dead at all. And apparently this priest hires a guy to exhume the body of Nicholas Flamel. Okay. And finds the cask is empty. Oh my gosh. Nicholas Flamel faked his death and escaped out into the world. And now he and presumably his wife, don't know where she's been for 20 years, but (laughs) presumably the two of them go wandering around. And there's actually... And they finally get to go on that Spanish holiday. Yeah, with genuinely sightings of them existed into the 17th and 18th centuries wow of people being like oh i saw them they went to the theater it's genuinely (laughs) like one of the sightings is them going to the theater i love it our sightings of them are just (laughs) two nice middle-aged french people on holiday it really is now of course this became like a big thing it didn't for much of the 20th century like to give her her credit, J.K. Rowling did really revive an interest in Nicholas Flamel. Yeah. But, like, for the time period, he was big stuff. Like, Sir Isaac Newton, like, name-dropped him, basically, in his writings. Sure. Uh, he also appears in the works of Victor Hugo, of Eric Satie, and Albert Pike. Mm-hmm. So they all make references to him as an alchemist. It makes sense, because I remember Victor Hugo talks about... Nicholas Flamel in The Hunchback, the Hunchback of Notre, of Notre Dame, Dame because yeah. uh, Frollo is really into alchemy for some reason. Yeah. Well, this all came about because of a book that purported to be the book. And I think with Nicholas Flamel's translations or anything like that. Sure. And this was published in 1612. It was called the Livre des Figures Hieroglyphiques. Okay. Or the Book of Hieroglyphical Figures. Sure. That doesn't sound like Hebrew, though. (laughs) No. No, well, I mean, this is the book that has been... Like, 
It's not just the book. It's Nicholas Flamel's book about the book. Okay, right. In which he puts down everything translated. Right. So this is his textbook translating the original book. Okay. And this book was a pretty big hit. All right. Like, lots of alchemists are like, yes, that guy lived about 200 years ago. He definitely knew what he was talking about. (laughs) I want that book. He clearly achieved immortality. Yeah, exactly. Despite dying. (laughs) Ah, but the grave was empty, remember? Oh, yeah, so sure. What happened to his wife? (laughs) She wanted a 20-year nap. (laughs) You know how it is. I guess. (laughs) Well, anyway, despite the fact that apparently this mysterious book was left undiscovered for 200 years, it became popular, and he became popular in alchemical circles, and as I said, name-checked in various things, so Isaac Newton names a thing after him. Big old deal. Cool. Someone... Flamelium. <laughs> Someone did question whether or not this was all real. That didn't happen until 1761. Nice. Where Etienne Villaine mm-hmm. claimed that the source of the Flamel legend was actually uh, someone called Arnaud de la Chevalier. Okay. Oh, sorry, Chevalerie. Chevalerie. Who was the publisher. Right, okay. <laughs> who basically wrote it under the pseudonym Irenaeus Orandus. I don't know. I d- Orandus like gold, maybe? No, Orandus. It's O. Okay, Rather yeah. than A-U. All right, fine. So, yeah, this guy was basically like, no, Nicholas Bumel didn't write this. It's clear the publisher wrote this yeah. and wanted to sell a load of copies. So he said it was by Flamel. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Uh, This guy pointed out that despite this apparently being a Jewish text, there are basically no references to Judaism. Yeah. uh, Apart from talking occasionally about Kabbalah. Right. Well, it would. (laughs) Which, exactly. It's one of those things which, again, is a bit of a red flag if it just talks about Kabbalah, because that, for people who don't know, is kind of the sort of esoteric mystic sect of Judaism. Mm. It would be the equivalent of basically being like putting a few references to the Illuminati and something and being like, you know, it's this ancient mystic order sort of thing. Yeah. Where it's like, you don't actually know anything about this, but you can just throw these words in. Of course, we and listeners to this podcast know that the Illuminati was a really boring book club. <laughs> it was. <laughs> but anyway, so yeah, despite these pretty convincing arguments, yeah. people didn't like that. They wanted to go along with the story. So they kept going along. This story kept getting replicated. And even to this day, if you look up stuff about Nicholas Flamel, this is the story you get. Okay. The problem is it's not true. Which bits? Almost all of it. Did Nicholas Flamel give money to people? He did. Did he exist? Yes, he did. Was he married to that lady who was 10 years older than him? Yes, he was. Did they go on a Spanish holiday? Maybe. Okay. (laughs) Was he a bookbinder? He was a bookbinder. Okay. But he wasn't an alchemist. He had absolutely nothing to do with alchemy that we know of. How did he make all his gold then? Well, that's a very good question. You remember his wife? Yes. You remember that she'd been married twice before? Oh, was she a wealthy widow? She was a very wealthy... <laughs> I don't know if she was widowed or I don't know what happens because we know quite little about her. Probably widow, though, Probably given the time. Probably widowed, given the time, yeah. And she'd had two wealthy husbands, so she's bringing even more of that scratch to the table. Not only that, but 
it's likely, as I said, that Nicholas Flamel came from a comfortable family. Yeah. He and his wife were also known to live very modest lives. Like, they didn't indulge in excess in any way whatsoever. They were good Roman Catholics. Okay. <laughs> so they were probably entirely supported by his bookbinding job. And then all that extra money was just kind of sitting there, which is how they ended up, you know, becoming philanthropists. Right. It's not they suddenly got money. They always had this money. Okay. And then we're clearly like, we're doing nothing with this. Let's actually do something useful, which, you know, it's nice. It's admirable. They just seem like a really sweet couple who just had, like, he had a bookbinding job. They did some stuff. They built Mm -hmm. hospitals. They gave money to churches and the poor. And then they died. Yeah. And at a reasonable age for both of them. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and this is the other thing. Like, firstly, when I saw that there was a 20 year gap between her dying and him dying, I, like, my immediate thought was like, if they're immortal and they're faking their deaths, what is she doing <laughs> for that 20 years? But also, there's another question, which is, if she's immortal and they're faking their deaths, then why did her death lead to some legal trouble for Flamel? Oh, did it? Yes. Oh. Because when his wife died, she left basically everything to him. Yeah. But her sister contested the will. Oh. And ended up winning the case, actually, and getting the lion's share of the inheritance. Oh, okay. Yeah, which I kind of feel like if you faked your death, you're going to organise that better. Yes. That seems like some really poor planning on their part. And, like... Also, they- <laughs> why would... She, why bother? Yeah. Like, why wouldn't they fake their deaths within a year of each other? Which exactly. would be quite... reason. It's medieval times. It's quite reasonable. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, yeah. There's yeah. just... <laughs> There's just that sort of stuff. Also, the story about the priest in the grave, there's absolutely no evidence for that whatsoever. Why would the priest bother? I don't know. I don't know. Like, maybe he was wanting to be an alchemist. I don't know. The whole thing is just... He was like, maybe there'll be gold in the grave. (laughs) Yeah, probably. Maybe he was buried with the Philosopher's Stone. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, exactly. Uh, That's literally part of the idea in As Above, So Below, is that he might have been buried with it. Yay. Um, And then they descend into hell. Weird film. Um, Hell is also in the catacombs under Paris. Fair enough. (laughs) I understand it is quite difficult down there. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, the thing is that Nicholas Flamel himself was not an alchemist. Like, we have no evidence of him being an alchemist whatsoever. He was just a guy who came from privilege and seemed to kind of recognize that. Okay. So he was chill about it. Didn't really do much. He and his wife didn't have any kids. They have all this disposable income around. Yeah. Just going to do some nice things. And then about 200 years later, some random person basically picks a name out of a hat. In fact, probably not out of a hat. um, Because... There was a street named after him, and there still is a street named after him in Paris. I don't know when it was, but it's likely that his name was put up on places. Like, it's known that some of the places they gave money to had little plaques for them. So I suspect that this publisher basically saw one of these and was like, that's a good name, because it is a good name. Yeah. It sounds like an alchemist. It does. And they're like... That's the person I'm going to do. I'm going to put down here. There's no, like, relatives who might sue or anything like that. (laughs) Like, it's fine. This is just a name that'll work. And then the book sold. And then people started going on about Nicholas Fumel and the Philosopher's Stone. And then, of course, later on, 
once we've gone beyond alchemy and we're actually doing <laughs> science, people forget about him until J.K. Rowling puts him in her book and suddenly he's everywhere again. And now he's a wizard too. He's a wizard and an alchemist forevermore, except what he was, was just a nice old man. Oh. Thank you for listening to That Time When. If you have any suggestions for episodes for us, you can email them to ttwpod at gmail.com. Thank you, as always, to Kevin MacLeod for our theme song, Anachronist, as well as any other music that Barnaby's used in this podcast. And thank you once again for listening. Now, go out, invest in eels, and don't go making any homunculi. Bye! Bye!